Good morning. It was a beautiful song and children's story, and what Emery was just reading is what we're going to cover today. And you'll remember as he read, there would be a, a lamb offered in the morning and in the evening. And it would be a continual, perpetual. This would happen every day throughout the year. A continual sacrifice. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There were sacrifices that happened, but once a year, things like at Passover or the Day of Atonement. But the offering of a lamb in the morning and in the evening was something that happened every day, and that's what we want to talk about today. In fact, there were three offerings that happened every day, perpetually. And those three things teach us how to give our heart to God every day. And so this will be an important lesson for us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that, uh, that we have a way of studying something so precious as the ministry of Jesus in that sanctuary above and to look at the earthly to teach us what Jesus is doing even now to change us, to speak to our hearts about how we can consecrate ourselves to you each and every day. You are worthy to have such a people who earnestly desire to know how to give our hearts to you. And so, Father, we lay this service in your hands, asking that you would be uplifted and honored, for you are truly worthy of our worship. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The daily service. A continual burnt offering. We're going to focus on the burnt offering. And it is continual. The word continual and daily mean the same thing. And what we're going to talk about. Continual. Something that happened every day. And the Hebrew people had this sanctuary, as you remember. And this is where that lamb was offered in the morning and the evening. They had an encampment of several million people around this sanctuary encampment. Now, the tents were like two-thirds of a mile away. So this was in the very heart of their encampment, of their lives. This meant everything to them. And they would behold this operation. And they would be instructed by the priest what all these things meant so that people knew how God was preparing their hearts before they entered the promised land. Now, you and I are waiting to enter that promised land, aren't we? And so we want to learn the very same lessons they were as we're preparing our hearts to live with God for eternity. So I had mentioned that there were three offerings that happened every day on behalf of the congregation. Now, you could offer these things yourself, but these three things, God was trying to teach something about the people about how every day we should be experiencing these three offerings. And then there were offerings that you would simply give as an individual. You would come with a sin offering or a trespass offering. You may come to God with a peace offering. We'll talk about each one over the next several Sabbaths. But these three happened every day. And the first one and the main one is the continual burnt offering. And that burnt offering of a lamb in the morning and the evening was always a reminder that Christ had died for all. This was something that was being taught every day, which means that continuously every day we should never forget 
that Christ gave himself for us. Now, oftentimes, this was called the whole burnt offering, and that meant that everything in this offering was placed on the altar and completely consumed, that Christ had given what? He'd given all. Whatever it would take, he would give up his own life if that's what it took to get us to heaven. And so as we behold this every day, how Christ gave all should inspire our hearts to do what? To give all of our heart to him too. Not a part of it, all of it. But these are things that are being taught every day. A whole burnt offering. The continual burnt offering teaches that Christ died for all. He gave up all. And you and I, as we would behold that morning and evening, if we were Hebrews back then, we would behold this. And as we beheld this, we would be thinking about, how can I give all of who I am to God? Is there a part of me that I haven't given up to God? Does that make sense? And then there was the meal offering. This was something that didn't have, as we'll see in a little bit, didn't have meat or anything. It was a flour and oil and frankincense. And it represented Jesus as the bread of life. So as you saw that the burnt offering, Jesus gave all, he died for all, he died for me. And then this meal offering reminds us that he's the bread of life. And we're not going to study that predominantly today, but it reminds me of God's goodness and his provisions. And then what is our response? If God has given me everything I have, breath of life, talents, time, then you want to dedicate all to him. So the burnt offering was, how do I dedicate all of who I am as he gave me all of who he is? How do I, in this meal offering, dedicate all that I have, realize that everything I have has come from him? And then, of course, there is the peace offering. We have peace with communion with God. And it reminds us that there's, Peace offering was a way of thanking God. It was a joyous occasion. Much like the prodigal son when the father's looking for him a long way off. And as soon as his son comes home, what do they do? They have a feast. This is a joyous occasion. And so when we have the peace offering, it is really ultimately about, I just watched Jesus give himself burnt offering. He's given me everything I have. And now the peace offering, knowing that... I want to have communion with this loving God who gave all for me and has given me everything. And what do I want to do? I want to be at peace with him. I want to lean. And we're going to look at all the things involved in this peace offering. How can we have peace? Because a lot of people come to church and don't have what? Don't have peace. But the sanctuary teaches us how to have peace. And we won't predominantly be studying that today. We'll hint on it a little bit, touch on it, but we'll mostly consider the peace or the burnt offering. But let's take a look at the meal offering and the peace offering just a little bit. Uh, In this offering, there was neither flesh or blood in the meal offering. It was made of flour, oil, frankincense. You can read about this in Leviticus 2. The bread of the meal offering was never to be made with leaven because leaven represents what? Sin. Sin. And so as I think about, if I really want to give all of what I have to God, because he's given it all, if I'm really going to be able to do that, 
I need to make sure there's not sin in my life because the more sin in my life, what? What am I going to do with all that I have if there's more sin in my life? I'm going to do everything for myself. And so one of the greatest ways to to learn to be a servant, to give as Jesus gave, is to make sure that if there's sin in my life, I get it out because if the sin's out of my life, imagine the kind of life and the thinking I'm going to have and the way I, how I'm going to look differently is at my time and my resource. I'm going to look at them differently if I have freedom from sin, freedom from self-centeredness, you see. It changes the way we look at these things. And then, of course, the meal offering was seasoned with salt. And salt back then was a way of preserving yourself from corruption. They didn't have refrigeration, so they put salt on things so it wouldn't spoil. And so this was a a meal offering where the salt was added to remind us that God wants me to learn to be a giver, to dedicate all that I have to keep me from being what? Corrupted by materialism, corrupted by self-centeredness. You see what I'm saying? We are blessed and we're freed from corruption as we learn to give, recognizing that God has already provided everything I need. I need to have this kind of mindset that it, the way I look at what I have, if I think it's all mine, and you know Lucifer got to that point, right? He thought everything he had was attributed to himself. Did it corrupt him? He corrupted his ways by looking at his own beauty as if it came from himself. But forever how long, from the time of his creation until that moment, he had praised God, he had always thanked God, and he was, by doing that, always keeping himself away from corruption. And so Jesus would say things like, it's really hard for a rich man to... And it's not that money's evil. It's how you look at it. It's how you utilize it, right? Does that make sense? And then, of course, in this meal offering, it was always uh, presented along an animal sacrifice where, as I realize it all came from God, I want to always make sure that I have confessed all my sins. Because you can't really separate learning to have be the greatest giver you can be and not have confessed every sin. Those, those concepts go together. Okay? Now, look at this verse. The meal offering, because of the frankincense, was this sweet-smelling Savior. So you start looking at verses like this, and one of the most beautiful verses is Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering. What kind of offering do you think he had in mind? Probably this peace offering. And a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. Christ is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And that all that I have done, uh, all that God has done with uh, all that God has done with all that is his is an expression of his love. Is that right? That everything God did in giving to the human family, whether it was to Adam and Eve, the garden, whether it was the water, you know, whipping two, two hydrogens and oxygen get together, was an act of, it really was. Everything God has, everything he makes, is an expression of love. And so when we start looking at this peace offering and see that it's associated with this, God is saying, look, if you want to be this 
peace offering and a, or meal offering, a sweet-smelling Savior unto God, just think about learning to love more and more. And the more loving you become, the better we're going to be stewards of the things that we have. If I am less loving, will it affect how I give? Will it affect how I look at the things I own? So ultimately, you can't really separate this beautiful verse of love from the meal offering. And when we talk about the meal offering, we'll talk more about that. Let's look at the peace offering real quickly. After the individual laid his hands on the head of the animal and then slew it, he separated all the fat from the different organs of the body, and the priest burned the fat upon the altar of the burnt offering, um, or of, of this, on the altar of burnt offering. Not only was the fat given to the priest to burn, but also the breast of this animal, the right shoulder, and the two cheeks here of every offering. So there's these four things involved in this peace offering. And the first thing that's mentioned is the fat is burned away. Because for me to have peace, what did the fat represent? Sin. The burning away of the fat, the burning away of sin, the ridding of sin. Is it true that I'll have more peace when I have more victory in my life? Absolutely. Part of the things that actually steals our peace is our enslavement to sin. And it steals our peace. We have guilt. And so God says, if you want to have peace, heaven's peace, a kind of peace that the world can't give you, then allow God to burn away the fat, the sin in the life. But the other thing was also, of course, the breast was given to the priest, the right shoulder, and let's look at those things in our next slide. So we looked at the fat, that was a separation of sin from our life, but the breast, the one who obtains peace must separate, be separate from sin and then lean upon the beloved, like the beloved disciple, upon the bosom of, of, of Jesus. Notice this verse. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom. So the symbolism in this peace offering was get rid of sin. Ask God, Father, is there still sin in my life? Okay? He probably won't show me all my shortcomings at one time. I'd just be completely overwhelmed, right? But he'll show me what I need to give up now. And as I give that to God, what I want to do is lean upon his breath. What is that a symbol of? That I trust him. And it's just like John at the Lord's Supper. He could say of the ones, who is it, Lord? Who's the one that will betray you? And he had that closest, of all the disciples, the closest to Jesus. And this is one way you have peace, is when we learn to rest upon the breast of Jesus, to learn to trust him. To draw close to him. And that's something that we need to do every day. Learn to lean on Jesus. Because if you don't lean on him, you're going to be leaning on something else. Whether it's your own, you know, talents or money or whatever it is or someone else. We need to to have heaven's peace. Lean upon Christ. The right shoulder represents strength. The strength we receive from Jesus Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. To really have heaven's peace is to allow God to be your ruler, to allow God to be your problem solver, 
Have you ever had a situation where you just keep spending days and weeks trying to figure out how to solve it yourself? How much peace does that give you? Zero peace. Then when we have peace with God and we're leaning upon his breast and we rely on the strength of his shoulders to realize that he, he's the one who will carry us through. This is part of the lessons we'll talk about in another sermon. And the two cheeks to the one who would enjoy the peace that the world can't give nor take away. Jesus says that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him thee also. If someone does something against you and you don't offer the other, but you look instead to retaliate, do you have peace? No, because you keep thinking about what they did, something that they said. But you know, matter what they others, no matter what they said, it's okay. I'll just turn the other cheek. And I have heaven's peace. Throughout his whole ministry, the religious leaders only sought to destroy Jesus. And throughout his whole ministry, he kept trying to reach them. You need to come to me, because if you don't come to me, you're going to die in your sins. But I can take it all away. I can save you. And he's saying this to them while they're even plotting his life. He could turn to them the other cheek. We we lose a lot of our peace when we think about getting even. And you'll never get heaven's peace unless we learn these lessons that we see here. But this could be a way daily I could say, Father, is there someone in my life I haven't turned the other cheek? Is that a fair statement? Father, is there something that I own, my time, whatever it is, that I'm just not willing to give up and put on the altar, you see? And so this is a way God wants us, these three sacrifices of how to experience the greatest joy you can have for that day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't kick yourself about yesterday. You can't change yesterday. It's already history. But you have a future. And don't worry about the future, but you have today. And you think about these three daily sacrifices to get the most out of today. And that will prepare you better for tomorrow. And it will help you get through and overcome those mistakes you made in the past. So these were the three daily services that happened every day, the continual burnt offering, the meal offering, Peace offering. And by the individual, you could, whenever you were impressed and led by the Holy Spirit, you'd bring your sin offering and you'll bring your trespass offering. And just a reminder of what the courtyard looked like. The, the tents were about two-thirds of a mile away from this structure here. And so they would be way, way out here. Millions of people, 12 tribes. But you would be impressed by the Holy Spirit. You sinned. You want to ask God to forgive you, give an offering. You'd come up here. This is 20 cubits, which is the same as 30 feet. And you'd come up here, and a priest would meet you here. And that's to teach us that there's no part of this plan of salvation we do by ourselves. I don't even repent by myself. I have been impressed by the Holy Spirit to ask forgiveness from God. Is that right? And so every part of this process of the plan of salvation, we need guidance, we need strength. 
There's no way of earning salvation, not one part of it. It's all by the grace of God and him wooing our hearts. So, whoops. So you would bring your sacrifice here. The priest would meet you here, and he'd lead you here to the north part or the north side for you to confess your sins on the sacrifice. And then, why do I keep doing that? And then he would catch the blood in a bowl after you confess the your sins upon the sacrifice and the blood is poured in a bowl. He would bring that, well, some of the sacrifices, like the burnt offering, was consumed on this altar, the altar of burnt offerings. But sometimes it would be brought in here, and you see there's two compartments here, holy place, most holy place. Some would be put on the horns of this altar, the altar of incense, and sprinkled before this veil, which was just before the presence of God here. And this is what the inside looked like. This is the holy place with the three pieces of furniture. And then the most holy place where the high priest would only go in there the last day of the religious year to cleanse the sanctuary from all the sins that had been confessed. All the blood that had been brought in, transferred the sin to the sanctuary, uh, would be cleansed on that last day of the religious year. So let's talk about the continual burnt offering. I want to talk about this word, first of all, continue. This should be a continual. The Hebrew word's tamid. The word tamid is, 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 uh, occurs 104 times in the Old Testament. And almost most of the time it's in reference to the sanctuary. Uh, but sometimes, and so you saw as Emery read, he read that this shall be a continual, every day, burnt offering throughout your generations. And so the word tamid means continual. It's a, it's a perpetual, daily uh, of the five times I think the word uh, tamids translated as daily, all but one of those is in the book of Daniel, and we'll look at some of those verses. Um, so this daily service, this continual burnt offering happened uh, every day, but there were services that would only happen once a year. Like I mentioned, Passover, Day of Atonement. But now we're looking at something that happens every day, and the reason is, is because there's something we need to do, what? Every day. Every day. Not once a year. There are Christians that go to church once a year. Go to, whether it's Christmas or Passover time. But to walk with Jesus, we need to do these things. It's every day. It's every day. Okay? Now, the nice thing about this word continual, it was not only associated with these three sacrifices here, the burnt offering, the meal offering, peace offering, but the word tamid was associated with the candlestick, and the candlestick always had what in it? Oil. Which means that you and I should always have oil. We should always have a fresh supply of grace. Every what? Every day. Every day we should be filled with the Holy Spirit that we might shine for Jesus. And we should pray for that. Father, I want more of thy spirit. But what does it mean to have more of the spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Huh? Grace. As we receive his work, as we talked in a lot, is to plant that seed of Jesus in you. He's not planting himself in you. He's planting Jesus in you. But he's the one who waters it. He's the one that allows the Jesus in you to grow. And so it's like you put a seed in the ground 
And you don't want the ground to be dry because it won't grow. The plant won't grow. The Holy Spirit makes, as the sunshine and the rain makes the plant grow, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables the Jesus who's already in you to grow. Okay? And so the candelabra always had oil in it, which means that every day we should shine for Jesus. Every day we should say, Father, use me today in your service. Consecrate yourself to be used of God. Father, bring someone in my life, fill me with the Holy Spirit, and bring someone in my life that I can make a positive difference in. That doesn't mean you have to stand on a street corner and preach. But it does mean many kind words, many kind acts. Wherever you may be, wherever at work or in the home, wherever you're making a positive, you are light to the world. And people are attracted to that. I've never heard anyone say, boy, do I like Jim. He's the most selfish person I've ever met. Who talks like that? But people would say, you know, I really like this person because they're so kind and generous and loving. You see, and when you're that kind of person, allowing, being filled with the oil, shining for Jesus, you're helping other people to draw closer to Christ. God's using you in his service. The table of showbread, there was always bread on the table. It would be replaced. But there was always bread. And Jesus is the bread of life, which means that he's what? He's always available. And every day we should be partaking of the life of Jesus. Find a time and a place to sit down and open your Bible and take in the life of Christ. Point by point. Chew by chew. Right? You know, we had a couple over. We had them for over for a Bible study and a meal, and I ate too fast. And the food went down the wrong pipe. And I'm coughing, and I'm coughing, trying to get... I mean, it was... got to a point it was embarrassing. I mean, it was going for minutes like this. And then I thought, you know, i got to slow down. Even when you study your Bible, slow down. Take it in. Masticate it, so to speak. Absorb the life of Jesus. Let it be really spiritually fed. Okay? The incense always ascended up. Jesus ever is present to intercede for us, right? Christ is always interceding. And Paul talks about how we should pray always, right? Always be in an attitude of prayer. Always be ready to be able to send up a prayer for another person, which means I have to look at people different. Because if I didn't care about people, I couldn't pray unceasingly. Because I don't care. But what if I did care? What if I really did want to see people in heaven? What if I did spend some time mingling with people as one who desired their good? And I thought, how can I pray for this person? It takes some time. It takes an attitude of prayer to think that way. And you know, God, to finish this work, God has to have a people like that who are timid, perpetually eating the bread, 
perpetually, continuously have an attitude of prayer. Does that make sense? But you know the devil is going to try to do everything he can that this is not your daily experience. He probably knows he can't keep you forever from not studying or praying or witnessing. But what if he can make sure it never becomes a habit? What if he makes sure it never becomes timid, continual, daily, perpetual? You see, this is how he destroys every revival that has ever happened in Christianity. These revivals start, and these revivals, they die. And we need another. Re- we need a revival that the devil can't stop. And that kind of revival is a people who understand the continual, the ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ every day. Does that make sense? See, that's something he can't stop. And then, of course, the lamb was offered every day, and the incense went up uh, prayer. Now, there is a power, and it's not the only one, but it is one mentioned in Bible prophecy. I want you to look. There's a power called the little horn power. I'll just read this verse. Yea, he, the little horn power, he magnified. The word magnified means that he exalted himself in an illegal way. He, he shouldn't have done it, this. Then he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our mediator between us and the Father. And so here's a system that tries to be the mediator between God and man. But the problem is, there's not a group of men, I don't care what they're wearing, who can be your mediator. The priests, even the best of them in ancient Israel, nothing they did could take away sin. They only pointed to the one person in this whole universe I could take away sin. So it wouldn't matter if we're talking about Hebrews or Catholics or Protestant pastors. If any of them try to play a role of mediator, it won't work. But here's a system, prophetically, we're told, that it magnifies itself to the prince of the host Jesus as a mediator to be able to take away sin and so forth. But notice what it did. And by him, by this little horn, the daily, the timid, was taken away. And the place of his Christ sanctuary was cast down. Not physically, but people didn't know that it existed. They weren't pointed to it. And this, is, this was a problem in the dark. This is why we call it the dark ages. Because they have religious systems that don't point to Jesus, the one and only one who can take away sin. Then you're just left with a system that doesn't work. Doesn't mean people weren't trying. Doesn't mean they didn't have good intentions. But it either works or it doesn't work. But I can tell you right now, the only power that can change a person's life comes from, comes from above. It does not come from the earth. It all comes from above. And so John or Daniel's watching in vision, and he winds up seeing two holy ones. Speaking, two saints, holy ones. And it's Jesus and Gabriel. They're the two holy ones in Daniel. Then I heard one holy one, Jesus. Jesus was talking. He's seen this in vision. And another holy one, Gabriel, said unto that certain saint. That's an interesting Hebrew word here. That certain saint means 
actually a wonderful number. You know, there's over 100 names and, and titles given to Jesus in the Bible, and one of them, he's a wonderful number. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows each star by name, right? He's the wonderful number. And so Gabriel asked Jesus this question, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily that we've been talking about, how we can give ourselves daily to God, right? True, you know, consecration to God. Concerning the daily, uh, to give both the sanctuary and the hosts of God to be trodden underfoot. And it's like Gabriel's asked, how long is this going to go on? How long is it going to be where this system's actually putting down people knowing about Jesus in heaven as the only true minister that could take away sin? And how long will it continue to trod on God's people? I mean, over 50 million murdered. Now, the wonderful number is going to give a wonderful number, right? If Jesus is called the wonderful number, the next thing he's going to say what? And this is a beautiful number. And he, Jesus, said unto me, Daniel, unto 2,300 days or evening and morning, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So the wonderful number gives this most wonderful number, 2,300 years. But what he's really saying here is 2,300 days of atonement because the cleansing of the sanctuary happened on how many days of the year? Just one day of the year is called the Day of Atonement. Out of the 365 days in a year, there was one day that all the confessed sins that ever Israel brought to the sanctuary would then be cleansed, and then they'd have another year of daily services where people could come and ask forgiveness. And, and then that next year, that one day, that same, he'd cleanse it. So if you have 2,300 days of atonement, how many years do you have? 2,300 years. And in 1844, Jesus tells Gabriel, there is going to come a time when the persecution of God's people by this little horn will cease. And there's going to come a time when the cleansing of the sanctuary will have, now notice the word cleansing. You know, Hebrew is a compound language, which means one word can mean different things. It means cleansing, but it also means restoration and restore their rightful place. So Jesus is saying to Gabriel, there's going to come a time, and it's going to be in 1844, on the 23rd day of a day of atonement. Jesus is going to begin cleansing the heavenly sanctuaries, means he's going to begin judgment. But something else happened, this compound word. There's going to be a rightful restoration of the sanctuary and the theology of God's people. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Historically, when did you have a people who'd come out of the dark ages who began to understand the true tabernacle, the true high priest, and began to add to their knowledge what it meant to daily give their life to Jesus? What year was it? It was 1844. God has not raised us up to talk about bad news. God has raised us up to preach a message that points people to something they need to be doing every day before Jesus leaves the most holy place because when he leaves, every case has been decided. And how tragic it would be 
for people to be lost and they never heard about these daily sacrifices, about how do I give my heart to God every day? Does everybody deserve to hear this message? And this is why we were raised up. We weren't raised up to guess what's going to happen at the end of time. We're already told. We don't have to sit there and listen and listen to conspiracy theories. He's already told us what's going to happen. So we just tell people what we've been told. And we spend most of our time doing what? Helping people get ready for what we know is going to happen. We're not spending most of our time telling people what's going to happen. We're already told what's going to happen. The problem is we've got to spend more time telling people how to get ready for what's going to happen. And to get ready for what's about ready to happen in our world. A time of trouble has never been means that people have to have a daily experience with Jesus Christ. Because if they don't have that experience, I can guarantee you they're not going to make it. Because all you're going to have when they take everything is your relationship with Christ, which is everything. Now, In our world, Lucifer tries to get, does, he does everything he can so that people don't understand what we're talking about here. And, and for the most part, I haven't talked that much about the continual burnt offering. But there's a reason why Satan feels like he can't afford for people to know how to give their whole heart to God. To live this consecrated life. And this is how it works. Throughout the whole religious year, people would sin. Not that they had to sin, but they'd sin and they'd come to the sanctuary, they'd confess their sins upon the lamb, and now the lamb bore their sins, the lamb loses its life, the blood's caught in the bowl, the blood is now transferring those sins into the sanctuary. And those sins are recorded there until the Day of Atonement when it is cleansed, right? And then begin another year. But what was unique about this day is that all those sins on the Day of Atonement that had come into the sanctuary, there's two goats. The first goat's the Lord's goat, which is offered as a sacrifice for sin in a redemptive way. But then there was a second goat. It was called the scapegoat. And at the very end of the service... After all the sins have been paid for by the Lord's goat, these very same sins were now placed on the scapegoat. Not in a redemptive way. That's already been taken care of. They're placed on the scapegoat Satan because it represents Lucifer. It represents Satan. And why are they placed on him? Because ultimately he's responsible for all these sins. He's the one... If he hadn't rebelled in heaven, we would have never known anything in this world about death and dying. There had been peace and love and harmony. But he came and he deceived Eve and Adam partook. And our world has known sin and death. But notice this very important point. The only sins that I know of, that is at least taught in the Bible, 
that fall upon Lucifer in the end are sins that come through the sanctuary. Does that make sense? These would be the sins of God's people that they've confessed and have been forgiven, and now they fall on Lucifer, not in a redemptive way, but because he has to bear responsibility for tempting and leading people to sin. That has caused so much sorrow in our world. So what does Satan feel like he has to do? He's trying to make sure that nobody rightly confesses their sins, that they're still living in sin. Because if they keep living in sin, their sins won't fall on him. Because the more sins that fall on him, the worse it is for him. But what if he could get the whole world to be involved in some sort of false religion, false theology, false sanctuary? False priest, false this, false that. He's doing it to save his own skin. And this is why he tried to physically attack the sanctuary, which he led the Babylonians to completely destroy, which is why he had the Romans completely destroy physically the sanctuary, why he tried to lead all these Hebrew priests into false concepts and the nation to be almost always in rebellion against God. Why? So that people would never know what it's really like to have a daily experience with God. Because you know, in Revelation 12, verse 17, listen to these verses. Satan knows what the war's over. Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, the church, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, those living in the end of time, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, Lucifer, you got a whole bar to Christianity that's interested in a military battle in the Middle East. But the devil knows that the war isn't over military. The devil knows he can't win an arm wrestling match with God. What the devil's trying to do is to try to keep everybody from keeping the commandments of God. Because if people are keeping the commandments of God... It's because they know how to walk with Jesus. They haven't earned anything. We can't earn salvation by keeping the commandments. You can only keep them by faith. Right? It doesn't take faith to break the commandments. It takes faith to keep them. And so if people are keeping the commandments of God, it's because they found that living faith in Christ and that daily experience with Jesus. The continual burnt offering goes with this verse, the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so every morning and evening, the Hebrew would be outside the encampment, or he'd be outside the, the t- tents and the wall there, knowing that the burnt offering was being offered. And it was always to remind him as he begins his day that God was going to provide a way of being saved. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't earned anything. It's not like he has to go out and work and then come back or whatever. He realized this is all provided for him. It's all provided. God provided a substitute. Just like, what was it, Abraham and and Isaac and he's about ready to take Isaac's life. And then the, God stops him. 
And Abraham can say, God will provide a sacrifice. And it was a lamb caught in a thicket, representing Jesus. See, God's not asking us to give our lives in a redemptive way. We are to surrender our lives. We're going to talk about that here in a second. But this person would look at this and he'd realize that God had provided a substitute for him. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul saw, said. This act of Jesus dying on the cross does not teach that sin had died. Not that we had died to sin, but that Christ had died for us. That's what Calvary proves. He did not die when we were penitent, but he died while we were yet his. You see, and this is what that, that lamb being offered every morning and evening is that Christ died for us. This was God's plan before. This was that everlasting gospel. Knowing that Adam would sin, God already had in place a substitute, right? This, I want you to think about these three words. This, to me, is powerful. Or if his sin, which he had sinned, come to his knowledge. In other words, you did something. You didn't know what was wrong when you did it. But after you did it, oh, God, I, I feel guilty. Then shall he bring his offering. He shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering. What's it say there? In the same place. I want you to think about this. What this is teaching us that we should bring our sin offering and bring it to the same place where the burnt offering was, which represents where Christ was crucified. When I confess my sins, I should use my mind, my imagination, and I should, in my mind, see myself coming right where in the same place that Christ was crucified. Does this make sense? So I try to imagine Jesus is hanging on a cross right now, and when I confess my sins, I should, like the Hebrew, I should kneel down and confess my sins in the same place. Because it makes a difference. Because when I confess my sins and say, Father, forgive me for my impatience, And I look up and there's Jesus who just gave himself for me. His whole self. Does that make me look at impatience differently? That I give my sins to Christ and confess them as if I'm confessing in the same place he died for me. Now look at these words of Paul. I am what? You know what he was envisioning there? Christ is being crucified, and as he gives his life to Jesus, I am crucified with Christ. Does that make sense? And it's no longer, listen to this, it's no longer I who live. So that means that when I confess my sins, and I'm being crucified, present as as he's being crucified, I am now choosing to live a new life. That the very sin that I'm confessing is what I'm willing to give away, give up. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but Christ, the same Jesus who dies for me, is now to live in me. 
Now, there's a Christianity out there that looks at Jesus kind of in a distant way. 2,000 years ago, he died for me, but aren't envisioning that he is to presently be living at me, that this is one and the same thing, that as I give my sins to him, I'm asking him at the same time to live in me, and that it's his life, not my old life, but his life that's to continue. Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Knowing this, that the old man is is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So Paul writes about this, that we should see ourselves, that as we confess our sins and give our lives to God every day, that we've been crucified with him, and I'm forfeiting that old life so that I can take up a new life. Because in parts of Christianity, this is what the devil doesn't want us to know. He doesn't want us to necessarily believe that in confessing our sins, we're actually giving anything up. We're only asking to be forgiven. But Christianity isn't about just being forgiven. It's about being crucified with him. It's about being crucified with Christ so that he can now live in our hearts and we live a new life. The devil doesn't want us to understand this because it's the motivation to really want to give your life to God. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, and here's the beautiful thing, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That when we're being crucified with Christ, And I commit my whole life to him as he committed all of who himself to me. Because that's what you do when when we're properly repenting. We're giving our whole self to God. And then we realize that we're going to be raised up into newness of life. And let me just go ahead and, and, and maybe finish with this one. The purpose... The purpose of confessing sins, the purpose of waking up and saying, Father, is there anything else in my life that I need to confess? Because if there is, I want to kneel right where you were crucified. And I want to give it up. And I want you to live in my heart. You see, there's a theology out there where people simply don't want to experience destruction. They don't want to go to hell. But Christ didn't die for me just for me to avoid destruction. Why did Jesus ultimately die for me? For me to experience righteousness. He died for me to free me from the prison house of sin of which there would be no knowledge of heaven's peace and true love. He says, Jeff, I want, I want to die for you. Not simply so you won't be destroyed in the lake of fire. I'm dying for you so that you can enjoy righteousness. I've got a plan where you forfeit the old life and I give you my life. That's eternal. 
But it's not just a life that goes on forever. It's a life of peace and joy. A life of love. And so when you think about giving something up, and sometimes people weigh it, well, if I start doing what God asked me to do, I might have to give up something I don't want to give up. But what are you giving up when you give up sin? You're giving up something that ultimately harms you. And he wants you to be free from that so that you can now experience that which is eternal. And I want us to think more throughout this week. Instead of thinking about all the bad things happening in our world. Think about what you have in Christ Jesus. Think about the kind of life you're going to gain by choosing to give all to Christ every day. Because ultimately, that kind of movement is a group of people that no matter what the world does to them, they're still thinking about what? Not what they're going to lose, but what they're going to gain. Isn't that right? We have an inheritance in Christ Jesus. He doesn't give me a new mansion now. Why? Somebody's probably just going to take it from me. But what does he give me now? Himself. And when you have that, you have everything. You'll get your inheritance. You'll get your mansion in heaven. Not tomorrow. It's coming. Soon. The ability to go to unfallen worlds. It's soon. But right now, you just give him your heart. And you receive all of who he is. Because he gave you all of who he is. 